It's great to have you joining us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. I'm host Carrie Freeman coming to you in September of 2023 from Atlanta in the Muscogee Creek Territory in the Piedmont region in the foothills of the Appalachia Mountain Range. Today we're going to be talking about biophilic landscape architecture, learning how using elements of nature and love for nature to design our outdoor spaces can make them more mentally and physically beneficial, particularly for people who are older and for people who are differently abled. Our guest is landscape architect David Camp, and that's Camp with a K, sharing his book, Nature, Design, and Health. Let me tell you about him. David Camp is the founding principal of DirtWorks PC, Landscape Architecture, located in New York City. His 40-year career involving practice, teaching, writing, and advocacy has been dedicated to promoting health through design with nature. A Harvard Loeb Fellow, McDowell Colony Fellow, and member of the National Academy of Design, David has been widely recognized with awards, publications, and documentaries. A frequent guest speaker and writer, David is an internationally recognized thought leader in the positive role of nature in the design of the built environment. He has written a personal narrative of his innovative and influential landscape design philosophy and practice in the 2023 book, Nature, Design, and Health, that we will discuss today. He lives with his husband on the southeast coast of Florida, which is where I grew up. I grew up in West Palm Beach. Welcome, David. Well, thanks, Carrie. It's great to be here. Uh, how are the tropical landscapes down in Palm Beach County? Well, they're a far cry from Shelter Island, Long Island, where I spent a good bit of my adulthood. It's they're great. Um, I, I, I love it. Um, it is such a different nature than what I grew up with in the Piedmont area of North Carolina, and then obviously my my life up north. And uh, it's uh, like being a kid in a candy store, you know, right. just a whole new nature here. It's so lush down there. Whenever I see palm trees and hibiscus, I think of Southeast Florida because I grew up there in the 70s um, and 80s. But and I, whenever I go back, I, I guess I forget until I'm back there that it's so lush and, and pretty tropical mm -hmm. down there because I've lived in Atlanta for so long. But they're both beautiful, right? Like wherever you live, there's wonderful yes. things about what's natural to your area. I love like the huge oak trees here, for example. We didn't have as much of that in South Florida. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think the thing, and you sort of hit upon it, is um, nature's fascinating no matter where you live. It's just yeah. you have to pause long enough to look. And um, I think that's one of the things that we're discovering here. You know, it's not the clipped hedges or whatever, you know, that is interesting to us. It's the savanna prairies. It's the pine scrubs. It's the sawgrass moss. It's the cypress swamps, the mangroves, you know. it's There's so many diverse landscapes. If you simply pause and look. Right. It's nice. Yeah. The stuff that's not so manicured yes. <laughs> when you yeah, can yeah. find bits of wild Florida in the protected areas. That's yeah, yeah that's really special. Yeah. So we have we've developed quite a network of walking trails throughout the whole area. There's sort of a 40 mile drive that we're willing to take, you know, for a daily walk. So uh, it's um, it's more diverse than we even expected. And that's knowing how intense and you know how intense the development is down here yeah um, it's um it's great to see you know that that collective you know sense of nature you know these are isolated islands in a way they're you know they're they're sort of they're, they form a fabric of resiliency yeah and definitely these days they need to be resilient in the climate era 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, David, how would you define biophilic design and what and what got you interested in that specialty as a landscape architect? Or if you have other words to describe your specialty, uh, you know, you can share those. It's, um, you, know, it, you know, whether it's biophilic or nature oriented, it's just that affinity we have with nature. Um, and the thing that has struck me throughout the years, and I write about this in the book, and is that I developed such a personal affinity to nature and all its patterns and forms and colors and textures. Um, and I realized, you know, that that individual discovery allowed me to discover a deeper connection that we all have an attraction to nature, but in very individual ways. Um, you know, how it strengthens a sense of identity and belonging, you know, and to hope and promise. And I think as a designer, um, part of our charge is to help people realize that very personal, very individual connection we have with nature. Yeah, I like that. And there are many facets of your book, Nature, Design, and Health, but I wanted to focus today on the parts where you share examples of how nature-inspired design improves the well-being of elder care communities that you've designed and also spaces designed for people with special needs. So let's start with some examples of how you've designed outdoor spaces meant to enhance the lives of older adults living there. Uh, that's a, a great question, Carrie. Thank you. And um, I'll share two examples, okay? They're very different settings, um, but you'll see the connections between the two. Um, the first is a facility called the Life Enrichment Center, and uh, it's a uh, an adult daycare program um, in the foothills of North Carolina, very close to my hometown of Shelby, North Carolina, nice. um, and it serves adults with developmental disabilities. Um, one of the things, and I think possibly because I knew this area so well, I knew how close these individuals were to the land, to food and, and to traditions. So what we tried to do was build a series of gardens that would complement the interior programs, but that would connect to these lifelong values. And that meant chores, garden projects, um, and everyone helps however they can. So it might mean checking the bird feeders. And when you check the bird feeders, you're also beginning to develop certain motor coordination skills and exercise and bending and stretching. So you can see what we tried to do was connect these sort of traditional values and the idea of everyone had chores growing up um, with very specific therapeutic goals. And um, it's a great facility because like I said, everyone helps. Um, and I realized that Everyday responsibilities strengthen a sense of purpose. Um, they strengthen right. a sense of contribution and accomplishment. And what I really learned, and I think this has been so valuable, is that even mundane tasks can sometimes be the most important ones. The idea of helping out. Um, and so this is a facility that was designed very closely to a series of programs inside. Um, the other facility, which I'll share with you, is a facility for Camp Hill, and Camp Hill Movement is a large international uh, movement um, that works off the work of um, Rudolf Steiner, and it looks at also elders in developmental with uh, developmental challenges. And what we did was we worked with a community in upstate New York and found a piece of land 
um, an agricultural piece of land that was absolutely depleted. Um, it was, um, it had erosion problems. Um, it had invasive, uh, plants. Um, it was in need of help. And, um, we realized by choosing to build on land that itself needed healing, I realized how design decisions can be life affirming. Um, you know, as we work to heal the land and rebuild these damaged ecosystems on this property, we were also building fellowship and improving the lives of those in need. So the process of restoring health, you know, strengthened a sense of community, of belonging and identity. So these individuals were very much part of the healing process of the land. Um, and I realized that healing natural communities and human communities is, is healthcare at its broadest sense. Um, another facility where contribution, um, participation, was a key part of building value in these individual lives. Yeah. Were they, did they, was there like a vegetable garden or a butterfly oh. garden or something like that, that they also had to tend to, to kind of get them out into oh, the space, absolutely. as you mentioned, with the kind of the chores and a sense of purpose? Yes. Well, the Life Enrichment Center had, you know, it was, a let's say, an acre of land. This was, you know, uh, the um, Camp Hill was many, many acres. And wow. so we actually had a variety of different scaled spaces. And some were some very in small, enclosed outdoor gardens. Everyone helped and you picked, you know, you picked the tomatoes, you did whatever you could. Um, there was also biodynamic farming. Um, we were restoring meadows. Um, and part of that process was building trails so that people can monitor things. So if you were, you chose the level of, let's say, degree of physical exertion you could. And that idea of choice um, was empowering. So we had all different scales and it is big scale now. I mean, they're collecting wildflowers for honey and soaps and things like this. It's, um, it's taken off. Um, but you can see how that idea of keeping a connection to traditions and building agriculture or building that idea of gardening at any scale back into these lives um, was key to building community um, and, and purpose. And I know you also tried to use the kinds of trees and flowers that are native to the area because a lot of people grew up there too. So that also connects them to their childhood memories through scent and other things like that. Oh, excellent point, Carrie. It's, um, you know, those are those memory inducers, um, you know, golly, you know, we had a Tupelo tree, you know, you know, or remember the lilacs that we had growing up as a child. Uh, it's, um, those are wonderful connections. And what I love about that is such a simple, small gesture, yet it can carry such powerful meaning. You know, just putting, you know, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, a crepe myrtle, you know, outside a window, you know, or a bird feeder, you know, and sort of seeing who comes and when they come and, you know, that constant battle with the squirrels, you know, it's, it's sort of wonderful, simple gestures that I think are, are profound and everyone can do that. They can do that in their own homes. Yeah. You know, that's how you build. I think that, that, or let's say finding that beauty in everyday nature. Um, by building those sort of very small, intimate connections. Um, we've done some grand landscapes, you know, and some big scale landscapes. But, you know, often, Carrie, it's those small, intimate choices right. that matter the most. Right. 
And can you give us an example of how you've designed outdoor spaces inspired by nature meant to enhance the lives of people with special needs? Oh, sure. Um, I So many of our gardens, and, you know, and I guess in a way we all have special needs, um, but for certain individuals with certain conditions, um, one of the things, and it's a mantra that I developed actually right back from our first garden, and it's a simple phrase of providing opportunity and choice for each individual to connect with nature in their own way, on their own terms, and at their own pace. And in order to do that, in order to create that kind of setting, the setting has to be secure. It has to be welcoming. It has to be accommodating for people to relax, um, to find a balance, to discover and maybe make a connection to something larger. Um, so that idea of choice, I think, manifests itself probably greatest in one of the gardens we did for kids with on the autism um, spectrum disorder. Um, if you know much about the um, um, autism spectrum disorder, you realize spectrum is in the word, is in the title, because it is so varied. It's so individual. Every individual with ASD um, uh, has an individual need. Um, so from a designer standpoint, that's quite a challenge. How do you, how do you build choice for individuals who might have almost conflicting needs? And we had that chance to design a garden for kids um, on the spectrum um, here in Florida, right up in Jupiter. Um, and it was a facility that um, was a large educational facility. And in talking with them, we realized that, and this is true, I think, in a lot of educational facilities around the country, natural environments, you know, are gaining interest because, you know, nature has these sort of quiet Sense, sensory complexities, you know, these subtle variations that help individuals focus attention and provide a chance for individual discoveries. So we realized we could build a garden that has opportunity for each of these kids to make a connection. Some kids are going to just gravitate right to, to the smell. And we have like garden rooms and like these little specialized rooms that are very sensory intensive. Some are for taste, some are smell, you know, some are, you know, for hearing and things like this. And some kids, you know, will just make a beeline away, but some kids will be attracted to that. So you see, we give the kids choices. Um, but, um, you know, like being a kid in the candy store, sometimes you take on too much. So we also have spaces for kids to, un to in a sense, escape to. Kids that get too much sensory overload, and it's a common problem. Um, because they don't have the buffers that, let's say, so many of us have in terms of dealing with sensory overload. So we have parts of the garden that were meant as escape valves. Um, very simple, very calming. Um, and again, it's a space to come to, collect yourself. Um, and How do you make it calming? Is it because it's the same plant? Yes. You know, it, like repeated so that it's... Um... I don't know. Is that, is that what makes it simple? It's um, what we try to do is limit the sensory stimulation. So part of it is spaces in shade um, okay. that well, let's say not spaces in total shade, spaces in dappled shade. OK, um, so that there's a certain amount of interest in terms of how the light flickers, no fragrances. Okay. Uh, no things of taste, simple greens. Um, and to give you a case in point, we have, and we called them a place away. Um, one of them is sort of, and, and it's a path that 
So you can imagine trying to design a garden that looks like a garden and, and, and it, it can be cohesive and kids and also their, their teachers can survey the entire garden, size things up and choose where to go. We also needed to make sure that the spaces had what I called a perceived sense of privacy, not actual privacy, but there was that sense of separation. So it might like a be a little zone or something or a nook yeah, of sorts. Exactly. Like using trunks of, of palm trees to create a veil. So it's yeah. not a wall, but you see that sense of separation those trunks provide. A teacher can see through it. Um, a child can get that sense that they're separate. So you see the kind of, and this is to me what makes designing in these kinds of environments such great design challenges because you've got to get into that level of detail. Um, so you see the kind of veil that you can create by choosing a type of plant material. And that plant material may also have a canopy that has a dappled shade, but we're very careful in the kinds of stimulations that we allow in these spaces. Right. If you're just joining us on Radio Free Georgia, this is In Tune to Nature, and I'm host Carrie Freeman, talking about the value of nature-inspired designs for outdoor spaces with landscape architect David Camp, author of the new book, Nature, Design, and Health. The book is published by the Library of American Landscape History. David's last name is spelled with a K, K-A-M-P. The book's website is naturedesignhealth.com. And that's a great place to go if you want to see some of the creative examples and beautiful images of these spaces that we've been talking about of David's. It's naturedesignhealth.com. David, I also wanted to discuss how wild animals can interact with and migrate safely through human landscapes and farms and gardens and how we can make these human outdoor spaces intentionally wildlife friendly and non-toxic. It's a it's a uh, a wonderful point, and it's something that it leads to an awareness of those bigger networks that we live in. You know that we're often just vaguely familiar with. Um, if I can give you one example, um, we designed um, um, a very large condominium complex in um, Manhattan, in Greenwich Village, and it has about well, it's a it's a very large building, but it steps back, and there's about seven different layers of terraces. And each one of those terraces captures some different ecosystem. So it's sort of like a vertical ecotone, if you know what I mean. You know, there's it, it sort of changes as you go up. And it's basically like following a barrier beach. You know, it's more protected at the base. And the higher you go, the more difficult it is. And we realized by doing that, we were actually creating a variety of different situations for migrating birds. Right. So it was a wonderful way for these individuals and it became part of the marketing um you know you're buying here because you want to be part of that network um that you are contributing to this network of of migratory spaces so even in greenwich village you know of yeah. all places, you can build let's say you can complement that network that exists out there I, you know it certainly happens at the uh, facility i mentioned the camp hill facility part of what we built into this restoration of this of this fairly large landscape it's about 400 acres our wildlife corridors we rebuilt them and they pass right through the community um and every small community and because there's a series of group homes um every community has a chalkboard and um they list the nature sightings so it's wonderful to sort of think that you know 
you can design for people to be aware and part of that network. Um, and it's great to see the chalkboard, you know, the warblers yeah. are back, you know, um, that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, that the people are getting into it. It's not just like they're putting up with the fact that there's birds or squirrels or there would be mice or even yes. some not maybe in Manhattan, but coyotes or other animals moving through if they see it as exciting or that it contributes to their life to be part of that network or serving as a corridor or a migratory space, a healthy space. It's nice if the people embrace that rather than thinking about it in a fearful way or like wanting that their yard to be some kind of um, cleansed or sanitized space free of, <laughs> of life, you know, which so with the chemicals and stuff, sometimes that seems to be what people create in their yards is just yes. a sanitized space instead of a living space. And it's, it, it's a choice. Um, and it's, it's what I think individual homeowners have to decide too. Um, uh, you probably know of a, a, a wonderful writer, uh, by the name of Robin Wall Kimmerer. She wrote a book yeah. called Breaking Sweetgrass. And you, know, she talks so eloquently about this reciprocity with nature. Um, and, um, I think we're all talking about that now too, which is, you know, we are partners and um, you can build that isolated sort of sanitized thing. Um, if that's what you need for whether whatever fears that that is, you know, helping a deal with, or you can be part of that network. And I love that idea of reciprocity of understanding the give and take one can have with nature on a daily basis. And that's where I think homeowners can, um, Small gestures like that on a homeowner's property can lead to very profound you know, contributions, I think. Right. Well, we have to wrap it up. But if any of our listeners wanted to consult a landscape architect who takes a wildlife and ecological design uh, approach, um, is there a professional organization or a center that they can contact? Um there's there's many certainly reach out to the American Society of Landscape Architects. Obviously, that is our professional organization. Um, but, you know, look at your local chapter of the Nature Conservancy or, okay. you know, um, you know, the Florida chapter is doing really, really great stuff and local organizations. You know, Florida has a native plant society that is really cool. <laughs> They're doing right. Really we have that stuff. here in Georgia. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and, and quite frankly, check out the small native gardens in your communities. They seem to be popping up everywhere, you know, and often they're part of larger establishments. And those larger establishments might have an enthusiastic holder culturalist that can help. So I think just open up your eyes and ears and look around you. If something catches your eye, find out who did it. Um, so uh, I think it's, it's simply it's building that awareness of the beauty of everyday nature. I love that. Well, that's the end of our show, but I want to thank you, David Camp, for being with us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. Thanks for promoting nature-led designs for healthier landscapes and greater human connections to the natural world. Great. Carrie, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to In Tune to Nature, broadcasting every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, online at wrfg.org and on Atlanta radio station 89.3 FM. We post action items, news, and podcasts on the show's website, facebook.com forward slash in tune to nature. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of WRFG, its board, staff, or volunteers. I'm one of those volunteers. I'm host Carrie Freeman, 
asking you to please support independent, non-commercial media like Radio Free Georgia. And remember to take care of yourself and others, including other species like those who migrate through your own backyard. Thank you for listening. Cheers. <laughs>